Well, good morning. Welcome back to our Sunday School class. We are continuing our study into the Church Father Augustine. This is session five on the guy. To give a little recap about what we have recently talked about, we, he was converted a couple sessions ago. It took a bit, but he got converted in his, young, in his early 30s. And then last week, the theme of the session was Calling in Crisis, and that was a clever name, if I do say so myself, because I used it in two different ways. We looked at right after Augustine converts, he goes through crisis moment after crisis moment. Job loss, the death of his mother, the death of his son. So the question was kind of, what is my calling while I'm in crisis, while I'm suffering? What does God call me to do? But it was a double meaning on the title there, because it was also through that suffering, at the end of it, he got his calling into the ministry, so it was, it was a clever title. If no one noticed, that's fine. That's, that's why I explain it now. Uh, there's no clever meanings to my title today. Stability and schism is what we are speaking of today. And we all can relate a little bit to stability or even instability, as well as schism. That is, like, breaking, uh, separating, schismatic stuff. So that's what we are talking about today, stability and schism. The question which we will be considering, why is there so much sin in the church? Why? There is so much sin in the church. You, you realize it. Like you see it. We see this all the time. Why is it there? We're supposed to be the called out covenant community of God, pursuing holiness, glorifying him. We should, we're taught all the time to love, love God, love our neighbor as ourselves. Like, why is there so much sin in the church? That'll be the question that we look at today. <clears throat> so at the end of last week, we saw that he went back to Africa. His son died. He was grieving all over again, as you can imagine. He started a sort of monastery with his friends. A few of his friends came into it. The single ones, the married ones couldn't do it. But uh, he started this monastery. He's doing a little bit of writing. And he needs a vacation. He had went back to around his hometown in North Africa for a short period of time, but he wanted to go on vacation. So he goes to Hippo Regis. Now, Hippo Regis, it's not called that anymore, but there is still the ruins of Hippo there today. Uh, I think the Algerian city is Al Anaba, Algeria. It still exists. And so he goes there. This is this beautiful beach resort type place. It's, it's nice. And he finds a local church there, and Augustine has a bit of a reputation. He's not known empire-wide, but certainly he is known in Africa that he was a very skilled rhetorician. He was a professor of rhetoric, how to speak, how to get, do logic in public, in words. He, he was good at what he did. He was very skilled in his career. And he goes to this church, and they instantly recognize this guy's got some talent. This guy's got some ability, and he loves the Lord. Look what he's gone through. I think we should keep an eye on this Augustine fella. And so he gets away, and their bishop, his name is Valerius. Now Valerius, he needed an assistant too. So not only do they see, oh, this Augustine guy shows up, and they're keeping their eye on him, they also need an assistant at this church. Now Valerius, he is kind of the opposite of Augustine in some ways. Uh, if you'll remember back near the beginning, Augustine is 
very, very proficient in Latin, but kind of poor in Greek. And that was something that his critics would use against him later on when he's using Greek uh, translations of the Bible. It, he, he wasn't the greatest with Greek, but he was proficient with Latin. Valerius was the other way around, very proficient with Greek, but not the best at Latin, which was unfortunate because there was a lot of Latin in North Africa and not as much Greek. So he's established there as bishop, Valerius is, but yeah, it's like when, you, when you're talking to somebody, English is not their first language, but they haven't mastered their second language yet. That's kind of Valerius serving his congregation there and serving Hippo. He needs an assistant. Augustine makes up for his weaknesses. It seems like a match made in heaven. He's going to church weekly. He's getting involved in things. The congregation quickly comes to love Augustine, and they're supporting him. They're, they see, if we have a need, this guy fills it. Put two and two together. Come on. And they thrust him forward to Valerius to be ordained and to be that assistant that they're looking for. This is something Augustine had never sought before. He did not go to Hippo looking to become a pastor, looking to be consecrated, going into the ministry. That was not his intention. But he gets there, and the people are saying, hey, you, be our assistant. It's you. And that is the first time he starts considering a life of ministry. It was not that dramatic of an event. He eventually gave in. Uh, after a little bit of time, he gives in. The congregation puts him forward. He is ordained. He becomes Valerius's assistant. There you go. Augustine's in the ministry now. That is probably the most stable thing in his life. Everything else is roller coaster, but that was pretty smooth and steady. We're going to start by looking at some stability, because this is now going to be the first time in essentially his whole life, where he has consistent stability. You'll remember as a, as a youngster, his father dies. He gets sent off to another school in Carthage. He gets involved with the Manichees, and that is not a great time for him. He burns out in Carthage, goes to Rome. That was a disaster. Goes to Milan. He falls into a depression. Uh, eventually, he converts. Then all the deaths in the family. Like He has not had a stable life at this point until now. He goes there in 390, and 391, he begins ministry. Begins ministry. And he will go from 391 up until the year 410 in relative peace. He finally gets almost 20 years of his life will be stable. It's not going to be too crazy for him. So... At last, he finds a bit of stability. Now, one more note. This is kind of a funny historical moment with Valerius and Augustine. About, on the language question, about how Valerius was the opposite of Augustine, there is, we, don't, we can't prove this, but there is the belief that Valerius used the language question and kind of fudged it a little bit, that he was much better at Latin than he led on, so that it would be easier for Augustine to get in there. You know, he made it seem, oh, I need this, this guy who was so good at Latin to help, and there's belief that he, he fudged it, and uh, I could just say he lied about it. But uh, there, there is that belief that he, he used it as a means to compel Augustine to stay in Hippo. So he becomes a pastor. He quickly establishes a clergy training school. This is one of, for me, I'm, I'm a young guy doing ministry stuff. That's something that, 
impresses me. He starts in the ministry and he immediately starts a clergy training school, helping other young guys in the ministry. He's in his uh, mid-30s at this point. He's going to help out younger guys learn how to, how to do this ministry thing. And even though he's not a seasoned pastor or anything, he has lots of gifts that can be of use to younger, younger guys in the ministry. So I think that's really cool. Not only that, but now he has an office to which he can devote a lot of time into writing. He starts pumping out writings against the Manichees, the former group that he was part of for nine years. Uh, but the Manichees, they were, they were kind of child's play for him. It was not much of a challenge to deal with the Manichees. Their whole system didn't even fit together logically. It, it was not hard for him to deal with the Manichees. Other than that, he, he's defending Christianity, doing apologetics. Um, and then there's another group that he started writing against, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's keep going with stability for now. In 395, this something happens that doesn't normally happen. You don't normally have two bishops in one city or in one church. And we've talked a couple times about being a bishop of a church. There's one church. Everybody goes to you. Uh, so usually there's only one. And you don't elect a new bishop until your other bishop dies or moves on or whatever. It's almost like being nominated to the Supreme Court. It's a lifetime appointment, and you've got to wait till they die before it gets filled. Well, they don't do that in Hippo. And this is one of the arguments, by the way, against some of the Roman Catholic claims about the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. If the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome was true at this time, there's no way Hippo could ever get away with this. But we see that the bishops had more... The individual church and bishops of their region operated autonomously from whatever was going on in Rome. That is a historical fact that Roman Catholics have to deal with, but they try to change things around. But in 395, Valerius senses that he's near the end of his life. He's an older man, and they once again put up Augustine for ordination as a bishop, to consecrate him as a bishop, which was not common to do. And he was hesitant because of that fact. Like, oh, like, but Valerius is still alive. But again, maybe he's a people pleaser. He, the people get their way, and he, let, he supports the nomination of his name to become bishop, and they approve him. So in 395, he becomes co-bishop with Valerius in Hippo. They're doing ministry together, even though he was, Valerius was still alive. The church loves Augustine. They absolutely love the guy. He's been serving them for about four years now. They support him completely. As it would turn out, only the next year in 396 is the death of Valerius. So his senses were correct. He was near the end of his life. He would die the next year. So the whole co-bishop thing didn't even happen long anyway. So Valerius passes away, and now Augustine, he is in his full-time post as bishop, where he would remain until his own death. And we'll jump ahead a little bit. He, Augustine would end up dying the year 430. So he had, by all standards at that time, a very long life. He lived uh, 40, 76 years. 76 years, that's a pretty long life back in the three 400s. 
he would remain in Hippo at this job as bishop until his death in 430. That's a long ministry. It's almost 40 years. So when I talk about how he finally had stability in his life, like that, that's a mark of stability right there. You remain in your ministry for almost 40 years. And his church never wavered in support of him. They never wanted to get rid of him. I think of uh, John Edwards. You all know John Edwards, the, one of the best Puritans of, of all time. Some say he was the last Puritan. But uh, he was in what a pastorate, and he was preaching for a long time. But there came a point where they didn't like how tough he was being on a sin issue going on. So they actually voted him out of his congregation. Can you imagine being the church that votes out Jonathan Edwards? Try to think of Hippo. Like they, they would never, like, like God forbid, they would not get rid of him. They, they loved him. But this is where his name comes from. You've probably heard Augustine of Hippo. Uh, where they got that the, the postfix, whatever, suffix after, comes from where you did your work as a bishop. That was a universal early church practice. So he's not Augustine of Tagast or Augustine of Milan. He's Augustine of Hippo. It came from where you served as bishop. So going to the final point of where he gets stability, 410 is the year that stability would kind of go away. And that is because what happens in 410, the city of Rome is overrun by Visigoths. Uh, another term we say barbarians. But Rome gets sacked in 410, and that is going to be the next chaotic crisis time, not only in the empire, but for Augustine himself. But he's learned how to deal with crisis since then. So we'll get to that at another time. But talking about stability in his life, he goes from 391 to 410 in relative stability. No big crises in his life. He does a lot of writing. He deals with opponents. He preaches a ton. He preaches an average of four sermons a week. Sometimes it would be six sermons in a week. And his average preach time was about 45 minutes. So every, four times a week, he is preaching this much. Almost every day, there's something going on in his church. And not that he would draw in hundreds and hundreds of people all the time. He, one of the issues he dealt with as a pastor was that He'd get a nice crowd on Sunday, but throughout the week during the rest of the sermons, it was like a very dwindled crowd. And that was just reality. But also reality was you did a whole lot more ministry than just on Sundays or one midweek. You did a whole lot more back then. And Augustine was, that's one of the reasons he has such a powerful legacy. We have hundreds of his sermons still written down when he actually preached thousands and thousands of sermons. They just had a huge body of work that they had done. And it's not quite like that today, but it definitely was then. Okay, so that is the stability in his life. Now let's move to schism, because it's not all roses. And this is where we get to the question, why is there so much sin in the church? What am I talking about? He was writing against the Manichees, but the Manichees were child's play for him. Another group that he had to write against, which was a big controversy of the day, were the Donatists. Now, if the Manichees were child's play, the Donatists were a challenge. They were not quite so easy to deal with. Let's talk a little bit about Donatism. Christianity had been persecuted 
at various times. You've probably heard about some of the persecutions that Christianity went through in ancient Rome. There was one of the first persecutions that was major, massive, and this is where we see some of the roots of Donatism, comes in the 250s, about 100 years before Augustine is born, with the libelous issue. What is the libelous issue? There was the Diocletian persecutions. It came under four, uh, or sorry, the Diocletian persecutions would be 50 years later. But the libelous issue was the emperor wanted to restore the entire empire to paganism. Christianity is illegal. Uh, but not just was it illegal, we are going to punish you if you are a practicing Christian or if you name Christ as God and not Caesar. So what they did is they would set up these tribunals where anybody accused of being a Christian would have to come, they would have to renounce their faith, turn in their scriptures, and they would receive a libel, uh, like a piece of paper that essentially says they renounced Christ, they sacrificed to Caesar. And they would receive this piece of paper, and this paper would essentially let them get away from that tribunal. You've, you got your libel, you were good, but you had to renounce your Lord. You had to turn in your scriptures. You had to say Caesar is God. That was a huge issue. So, so many Christians were put to death because they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't bow the knee. But a lot did. Many of them think, I got kids at home. I got a job. I, I don't want to die. I, I, I can just, fine, I'll, I'll light the incense, I'll sacrifice to him, and then I'll repent after Things like that goes on. What would you do? You're brought before this tribunal. Renounce Christ or die. Quite literally, that is an option that many of them had before them. Now, they didn't always sentence them to death. Sometimes they would strip them of property, take away their income, take away everything they owned, uh, beat them. Like, there's other things that they did, but a lot of times it was death. And you had to think going into it, I might die for this. Would you renounce Christ? Would you stand firm? So Donatism, the, the roots of it starts there. Because what do you do with the people who renounced Christ in front of the tribunal, who sacrificed to Caesar, who condemned Christ, but then when the persecutions ended, they wanted back into the church? They said, I was, we, maybe they repented, maybe they didn't, but what do you do? You sacrificed to Caesar, do we let them back in? Do, what if they were a pastor? What if a pastor did that? Do we let them back in? Do we let them be, go back into the ministry? These are the issues that started coming up. Whenever there's persecution, these types of things start going on. What do we do with those who compromised? What do we do with those who gave in? So that was in the 250s. It ended in the 260s. We start getting the roots of Donatism. About 50 years later is the Diocletian persecution. So the persecution slowed down, but then it ramped up again under four emperors, Diocletian, Maximian, Galerius, and Constantius. This was a very, very bad persecution as well. They tried to copy what went on in the 250s and bring it to the early 300s. So this would occur from about the year 304 to 311, about a seven-year period. Maybe a seven-year tribulation? <laughs> but uh, about a seven-year period, it was a horrible persecution. Just like before, they would confiscate your land. They would take away the rights of Christians. Christians were not allowed to, weren't given the same rights as everybody else. Churches were shut down. 
You had to hand in your scriptures or you had to burn them in front of the tribunal. Mandatory sacrifice to the Roman gods, including Caesar himself. And executions characterized these persecutions. But Christianity continued to spread. It's so crazy. The more they tried to push against Christianity and kill the Christians, the more it spread. One of the interesting things about this Diocletian persecution is one of those four emperors who went along with this had this idea that they were going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem to anger the Christians. Because Jesus said, in, back in Matthew 24, looking at the temple, I, I tell you, this temple will fall down. There will not be one stone left upon another. And then the temple... You know, the temple is in our, holy, in our hearts, the Holy Spirit and all that. So he said, well, Jesus said that the temple was not going to be left with one stone upon another. I'm going to rebuild that temple, was one of the ideas. He was going to make the Jews happy and make the Christians angry. Those plans never panned out, uh, I would say, by the sovereign hand of the Lord. Although if there was such a thing as a dispensationalist back in the day, that'd probably make him really happy. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Now, there was one certain, so those persecutions end eventually in about the year 311. Christianity is spreading despite. But the same issue comes back. What do we do with those who turned in their scriptures, who sacrificed to the Roman gods? Do we let them back in the church? Do they have to repent? Do we let them back into ministry if they were in ministry? What do you do? There would be one more attempt at persecution in the Roman Empire against Christians, and that was in the 360s. I put in the events column, not today, but before, Julian the Apostate. Uh, Christianity had been declared legal at this point. It was uh, then protected by the state. But Julian the Apostate was one em emperor who tried to bring the empire back to paganism, but he failed. One thing he did realize, if we kill them, it still spreads. So he tried a more soft persecution route where they would uh, provide incentives to be pagan and not give those incentives to Christians. It was a, more so it was a softer approach. A little, it wasn't as violent. He wasn't killing them anymore. But one thing he did do was if you passed in your scriptures, then you would achieve certain extra rights. You would gain uh, property. Uh, some Christians could lose their property if they didn't. But that was about the worst it got. They, he wasn't killing them anymore. So the Donatists already were starting to have these ideas about this, what's going on with this church. This is not a pure church. There's all this sin. There's all this betrayal, all of this giving in. And there's, it, it hasn't ruptured yet into schism, but it's getting there. And after Julian the Apostate and the governor of the African province, he was a little more tolerant to Christians because there were a lot of Christians in Africa at the day. He just said, bring in your scriptures. That's all I need. I'm not going to make you do anything else. Just bring in your scriptures and you're, we'll leave you alone. But you're not supposed to give your scriptures in. We live by the scriptures. The, they, they contain the word of God. It is the word of God. So they had this term for anybody who gave in their scriptures. They were the traditores, traitors. That was the term used to describe anybody who gave in their scriptures. And now that what was boiling from before, all these persecutions, all these people trying to get back into the church after a compromise, it's about to rupture. So the controversy 
came after the 360s, after Julian the Apostate. That's when it, it really blew up. There had already been a few schismatic churches that had been started, but now it's getting all over the place. The controversy was what to do with those who were tradatores, what to do with the traitors, as they were labeled. Those who compromised with the state, selling their faith for security, should they be allowed back in worship? Should they be taking the sacraments? Do we give them the Lord's Supper? Do we baptize them? What if they were pastors, elders, and wanted back in church leadership? What if they repented? A major doctrinal issue came up at this time, and that was the one of sacraments. What if somebody was given the Lord's Supper or was baptized by a pastor who was a traditore at one point, who had given in? Say he, they had repented, their, you know, some years went by, they're reestablished to their position, they're administering the Lord's Supper, they're doing baptisms, but you were baptized by a traditore pastor. Is that baptism legitimate? Or is it illegitimate because of the compromise and the lack of purity of the guy who did it? That became a big issue. Does it matter who, or does it matter the purity of the person who baptizes me? What if the pastor who baptizes me ends up apostatizing one day? They end up becoming an atheist. Is my baptism compromised then? That became a big question because the Donatists said yes. They said if you were getting any ministry done to you by a traditore, it was illegitimate, not blessed by God, you needed to do it again. And so the, there's a Latin phrase for everything in theology. The Latin phrase that would end up going against that idea, it's your baptism does not depend on the purity of the person giving it to you, but the power of it comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from God himself. He's the one who confers the grace in the sacraments. It's not, it's not the pastor. It's not the guy who gives you the, the wine and the bread. Like, there's no power in that guy. The power is in the Lord who administers the grace through the sacrament. And so that idea came to be called ex Aper operato, which is grace from the outside. It wasn't coming from that guy right there. Uh, it didn't necessarily matter the purity of the one who was doing the sacrament. And I've talked several times about the lasting influence of Augustine that he has had on Western theology and on us today. The Westminster Confession of Faith is one of the best confessions ever produced in the church back in the <clears throat> back in the reformation post reformation time it says in the westminster confession of faith chapter 27 the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them that is the sacrament itself neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that administers it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains, together with the precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. A lot of extra words there. But essentially, Augustine was the main church father who was going against the Donatists uh, on this point. No, you don't need to have a perfectly pure guy who does your baptism. He doesn't matter. What matters is the Lord who is conferring the grace. Augustine was the spokesman for that position. And what do we have in the Westminster Confession of Faith, but almost exactly 
how Augustine argued it back then. His influence is immense. We don't see, and this is going to happen a few more times, uh, not today, but in some other things. What Augustine did and said and how he ministered made major impacts on how the church would, um, and what the church would understand about things. That'll end up playing a role in this. Oh, I'll fill this in. The question here is, how did he deal with the Donatists? And one of the things that the Donatists were doing, remember? Single church, bishop, everyone goes to him. Well, the Donatist says, you guys are full of impure people. You're, you're not worthy of doing the sacraments, of preaching the word. So we're going to start our own churches. This was one of the first times that this ever happened. You still had one church, basically. There's not all these different types of different churches. There was only one. Not anymore. So a huge issue with the Donatists is that they were schismatic. They started... Now, most cities didn't have a Donatist church and a mainline church. You, you had one or the other. You had Donatist cities... And then you had mainline. They used the word Catholic, but they used it as universal. They didn't mean it as Roman Catholic. But you either had the Catholic Church or you had the Donatist Church. But there were some cities where you had both. And there was always conflict there. So we talked about the difference between Africa and the rest of the empire. There were a lot of Christians in Africa. But another unique part about Africa was that they developed this very unhealthy fervor around martyrs. Anybody who went to these tribunals and died for the faith, they were, up, they were uplifted, they were praised, they were heroes, absolute heroes. They set up these martyrs in such an unhealthy, praised light. And much more so than anywhere else in the empire. Africa was really unique in that way. If you were an African Christian martyr, you were so highly regarded that you were essentially called perfect. You were so pure and above everybody else. Uh, that was just a belief that they had. And so in Africa particularly, whenever there wasn't suffering anymore, like when Rome decided to legalize Christianity, that was a sign that something was impure in the church. Because we should be suffering. We need People should be being martyred. Like, that is the type of relationship we're supposed to have in society. They had that idea. So Christianity being legalized made the Donatists pretty upset. They're like, we shouldn't be having friendly relations. Like, we should be being martyred. We should be suffering. That was the idea, uh, especially in Africa. It wasn't good if the church was no longer suffering. The state shouldn't be accepting Christianity. If there's too much peace... It's a sign that Christians are getting too comfortable with the state. These issues, they don't go away. There's nothing new under the sun. They believed a significant issue was of toleration of sin in the church. They thought the church was way too tolerant of people who fell into sin. Um, and so anybody who gave in during the persecutions cut off. They taught the strict purity of the church... It was supposed to be very holy, like very high level of holiness and purity in the church. One of the difficult 
One of the things that makes it difficult to deal with the Donatists, though, is that they are doctrinally orthodox. They didn't have false views about Christ's divinity. They didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was not God. No, they were Trinitarians. They, they believe sin is sin. Like, like, they're doctrinally orthodox. That makes it even tougher. It's like, this is like an in-house debate then. We're not dealing with atheists, agnostics. These are Christians who are becoming schismatic. But is the effect of what they have done so perverse that we start questioning the brotherhood that we have with them? Both sides are asking that question of each other. Schism's coming. Schism is happening. It's already happened at this point. So, how, so on that question then of how pure, how holy the church is supposed to be, how are we to understand what level of holiness is supposed to characterize the church? That's a primary question in this. Do the Donatists have a point? Is there, is there any way in which, yeah, I think I might see myself a little more on the Donatist side of, on some of these things. Maybe not all of it, but some of it, they have a point. Or are they wrong about everything? And then the primary question is, why is there so much sin in the church? We'll keep going. They were a difficult beast to deal with. They had a very black and white approach to sin. Little room for subtlety. You fell into a sin, bye-bye. Their doctrine was orthodox, but their impact was schismatic. They kept on splitting. Nobody was good enough for them. Augustine wanted them back in the fold. He was one of the guys who took it on himself to write to the Donatists. Uh, he didn't at first. He wasn't incredibly... A polemic that is going on the offense, like, you're so wrong about blah, 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 blah. He was trying to bring them back in. Like, this is not how we're supposed to act. We, we should strive for unity, even if we're in disagreement about this. Like, come on, come to the table. Let's talk. Let's read the scriptures. He was trying to be an ambassador of peace between the mainline church and the Donatists. He wouldn't be very successful, though. There was a council in 411. We're going way in the future at this point. But in 411, there was a council in Carthage to unite the groups. And it, this was a time when the emperor, uh, Christianity was now the state religion, the emperor was expected to be Christian, and he oversaw these councils. And so the emperor got a say, essentially. They both made their points. Augustine was the spokesman for the church, and the Donatists had their guy. And the emperor sided with the mainline church, said, you guys need to come back into the fold. And if you don't, there will be punishments. And it actually, th this is a historical point we'll talk more about in another session, but a lot of Donatists did return after that council. They came back to the mainline church, but some didn't, and the consequences that the emperor warned of happened, and he started persecuting the, just the Donatists. And it came to tremendous success in terms of bringing Donatists back into the church. As soon as the persecution started, they left Donatism and came back to the church, or they left the faith altogether. It didn't turn into widespread riot and rebellion. That would impact Augustine. Because later on, in another controversy that he was going to be in, he found more favorable opinion upon using state force against heretics, against those who are schismatic. Again, the influence that goes down the line. What happens in the Reformation some 1,011, 1,200 years later? It is favorable to use state force to persecute and punish and kill heretics. 
A lot of them go back to Augustine in this time and say, he's my support that this is, you know, this is how we should deal with heretics. He saw the success of state pressure against heretics. And so we'll talk more about that another day, but it did, it did make an impact on him. So how, we talked about how he was the spokesman. Um, I should probably finish that. They assumed a form of, what do they assume a form of? I'm forgetting my own notes now. <laughs> Biblically, theologically, how did Augustine deal with the schisms? Well, the main question for him was on the nature of the church. What are we supposed to see in the church? And the answer is in Matthew 19. If you have your Bible, Matthew 19 is where to turn there. But the parable, there's a parable in there. And what we end up getting out of this, the nature of the church we see is we ought to understand the wheat and the tares. I wanted to read basically this whole chapter. We're running out of time, though. I'll kind of speed read it, try to follow along. So Jesus went out, crowds are gathering to him. He gives a parable. A sower went out to sow. As he sowed, seeds fell on the path. The birds came and devoured. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. They didn't have much soil. They sprang up but had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns. The thorns choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil. They produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who hears, let him hear. Okay, so that's a parable that he's telling. And he's, they're asking, why do you speak in parables? Uh, verse 18, he now explains it. When any, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, cares for the world, and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word and proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in one sixty, and in one thirty. Talking about the nature of the church. He tells a parable of the weeds. The kingdom of heaven is like the man who sowed good seed in his field. While his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And going forward here, basically down to 30, both are going to grow, the weeds and the wheat. The wheat and the tares, they're growing together. And he binds them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The weeds and the wheat growing together. This is the nature of the church. It is one where we have the wheat and the tares, the godly and the ungodly. We have those who love God and those who are here for the benefits of the community or for some other reason, but they don't have saving faith. That's what Hebrews talks about. Those who were in your midst, those who tasted of the spirit and all, blah, 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 but they fall away and how it is impossible for them to ever be restored. Because this is the nature of the church. We are a covenant community of people, and we will have true, the elect of God. We will have his people, but we will also have those who are here, and they're not seed that was on the good soil. They're here for a time, and they will fall away one day. That's just the nature. We are not wise enough to be able to know and judge who is and who isn't. 
but we have to accept that this is the nature of the church. Why are the Donatists wrong? You can't have a fully pure church. Mark talked to, brought that up too. There's not one who is pure enough to then say, yeah, you're, you're not good enough, but I am. The nature of the church is we are the wheat and the tares. The weeds and the wheat. So that, that was my point. So the Donatists, they assumed a, a form of spiritual pride, thinking themselves as uh, above everybody else. Think of how prideful you have to be to say, I'm so pure, but you're a traditore. Did they have a point? Probably a small one, enough to make a whole schism of the entire church? Certainly not. Until the f so, so how do we deal with this issue of why is there so much sin in the church? There will always be the wheat and the tares, the good seed and the weeds in the church. God will separate them in the end. It's not up to us to separate that. Until the final day, sin remains with us. We cannot have perfection. Another point against Donatism specifically, ah, here was my other one, and now I'm remembering. A big point against Donatism, it was an African-only thing. It didn't spread outside of Africa. They were the ones who had this unhealthy idea with martyrdom. Donatism didn't spread outside Africa. That's a major point that Augustine used against them. If you guys are, are the so-called true, pure church, how come you can't get outside Africa? That's the only, so the true church is only in Africa and nowhere else, really. Kind of like saying it's only in Rome. Never mind. But... <laughs> So it's only in Africa. That's not a good point for the Donatists. And then they assumed a form of spiritual pride and self-deception. So do the Donatists have a point? Yeah, in some respects, I think they have a small point, especially when it comes to church leadership. We have this idea even today. If you are a pastor and you commit sexual sin, you commit adultery against your wife, you it's pretty much assumed that you are disbarred from, from formal ministry for the rest of your life. Like we, we don't typically put a Christian pastor who commits adultery and restore them back to being a pastor. You're typically barred for life at that point. You can still serve in the church in other ways, but you won't be put as a pastor. That is a very common thing. Like we still do that. So the Donatists did help us think about, think seriously about some of these sin issues. They took it way too far. And so, for us, what is the encouragement? Bear with one another in the faith. Bear with one another. The truly repentant will show fruit. We don't get to decide who is and who is not in the kingdom.